don't let your dreams be dreams. Yesterday, you said tomorrow. So just do it. Make your dreams come true. Just do it. Some people dream of success while you're going to wake up and work hard at it. Nothing is impossible. You should get to the point where anyone else would quit, and you're not going to stop there. No, what are you waiting for? Do it! Just do it! Yes, you can! Just do it! You're listening to The Seasoned Migrant, a show about culture, migration, and ideas, and how these have shaped our understanding of the world. I'm Yusuf Amanullah. And I'm Leonard Vaut. And on this episode, we're talking about memes, folklore of the digital world. For this episode, we're looking at memes, which seemed like something that you couldn't intellectualize. But here we are, having done a lot of research on the origins and the history of memes. And one thing that's very fascinating and one reason why we decided to look into it is that it seems to defy all kind of cultural boundaries, political boundaries. Memes has become this global language, in particular, perhaps for young people, but it's become this language that everyone on the internet seems to understand. And it's both extremely simple, but also, as we all know, extremely difficult to explain to someone like parents or grandparents that just are not in touch with what all these things mean. But one thing that's come out of this is that unlike other types of information or media, it seems like we don't have a couple of, of strong centers that become sources for all these things, but rather everyone has a fair say into shouting into this meme space and carving out meaning or whatever they want for themselves. And the funny thing is that memes as a thing didn't actually start on the internet. Right. So one of the most famous examples of a meme that existed before the internet is Kilroy was here, which came out of World War II. So the story goes that a shipyard inspector named James Kilroy would physically sign his name off on various parts of a ship during his inspections. And as these ships made their way onto the seas, soldiers who didn't understand the context of this text would pretty much see it everywhere. And basically, in order to amuse themselves, they added a funny face on, and lo and behold, the meme was born. And this meme started appearing everywhere that Allied soldiers found themselves in and became widespread. So this is just one example of how a little drawing or other kinds of visual culture have become part of this kind of modern or postmodern folklore around the world. And since the internet became a thing, they've just exploded. And well, in this episode, we'll be looking at the origins of memes, the features that allow them to be vehicles for all kinds of views. And finally, we'll look at the phenomenon of memes spreading across the world and what this says about cultures being connected. So the actual term meme comes from Richard Dawkins's 1976 book, The Selfish Gene, and it's basically defined as a unit of culture that's imitated. 
and it relates to any tradition or behavior that was social in some way. Take birthday parties or fashion senses or even going to church. And what Richard Dawkins was trying to achieve was to apply genetic theory to culture. And his argument went along the lines that for each of these units of memes, they're trying to compete for the attention of people. And the memes that become successful are the ones that are most suited to their social cultural environment. And the ones that aren't become extinct. Right. And then when we apply this to the internet, these big questions come up. Like when we're actually talking about the internet, are we talking about one big sociocultural environment? Or are there, in fact, many? And that too, when different memes are competing with one another, in this context, what determines whether they're successful or not? And within this realm of cultural studies, we have so many contrasting and disagreeing perspectives on, well, on just about everything from what culture is to how it spreads. And well, because of that, we don't want to weigh in on these debates that have been going on for ages. But one particularly important account is this idea that we have a few very loud and very powerful voices that are very influential in what kind of media and what kind of information we consume. And the key part of that argument is that these places that are very loud and powerful have a disproportionate amount of influence in shaping this global culture or global media. And well, if that's true, then it comes to this worrying implication that perhaps culture around the world and perhaps internet culture in particular is becoming very similar and is being produced in the image of the places where the influence is coming from. And this view is probably convincing when you look at the likes of movies or the news. But when it comes to memes, we don't just see a two-way conversation, but it's more like everyone gets involved in the conversation. And so this idea of a one-world view that's dominated or influenced by a key player doesn't really hold. I mean, even if you look at the language of the internet, you would think that English would be the focal point. But even as early as 2003, two-thirds of internet users across the globe were not native English speakers. And in these 17 years, with the increased usage in the likes of China and India, this trend has only grown. And because of how the internet works, it's probably the case that there's a lot of layers to these imbalances and influence. And we can't just take memes and place them in these systems and say that, yeah, you know, they're reflecting and reproducing these imbalances. But it's not just about how the internet works that probably makes this true. There's so much about the features of memes and their nature that makes it hard to argue that they're vehicles for any one voice. And so when we look at, from a more academic perspective, what makes a meme successful, we see that there are two main ingredients, and those are that they're made by ordinary people and that they're simple and repetitive and so can be copied or customized by more people and so spread across the internet. And so memes and meme spaces are this kind of free-for-all of ideas where everything is being made fun of constantly. And when you have something that's all about parody or humor or making commentary on social observations, 
it becomes really hard to use memes to promote a particular message or to shift influence around. And often when you do try, it just backfires massively. And we're going to be looking at two cases where memes helped a movement or a cause spread. And then the very success of memes doing that prompted people to oppose it by using memes as a weapon once again. And the first of these is the we are the 99% or the Occupy movement. And as you're probably aware, it was a movement that was organized in a very grassroots kind of way. And they were protesting the social and economic injustices, firstly in America, and then it spread around the world. And they framed themselves as being the 99% and, and standing up to the 1% that owned or own a disproportionate amount of, of wealth and economic power in the country. And they owed so much of their spread and of their success to, to memes and digital culture more generally. And so before the movement became counter-memed, one of the founders, Kali Lawson, was all about using counter-memes himself. He really wanted to resist against messages conveyed by big corporations that had amassed large amounts of wealth. And so he did this by creatively vandalizing their billboards or making mock advertisements that made fun of their brands. And from there, a new meme emerged that was about sharing one's personal experiences of economic injustice. And it was a very simple meme of someone holding up a sign in black and white with a detail of their personal story. And again, ordinary people started replicating this simple concept. And as a result, it was super successful in giving the overall campaign a lot of momentum. And so this movement had so much to do with memes and in part was all about counter-memeing themselves and this idea of culture jamming. But the funny thing is that this sign-holding black and white picture became parodied and was used as a weapon for the exact opposite view. And it was used by a group that called themselves, we are the 53%. And they were referring to the amount of Americans that pay income tax. And they argued that the 99% shouldn't be complaining when it was them that were paying more into the system than they were getting out. And to oppose the movement, they started taking up these black and white pictures. But instead of talking about economic injustice and how it related to their personal lives, they detailed their careers and how hard they perceived that they had worked for, for their entire lives. And so the same meme, exact same aesthetic and the, the same message gets taken in two very different ways to argue for the exact opposite views for the same cause. And so just like we see this free-for-all of ideas that ultimately lead to these two opposing messages coming about, we see a similar story in China, but rather than it being this grassroots campaign, it's got a more top-down approach. So people in China, like in any other country, use the internet to discuss and debate the government and their actions. And in turn, the Chinese government is on the lookout for subversive messaging and implements this active censorship system that blocks certain keywords from any posts. And the official reason why they have this censorship system is that they're working towards building a quote-unquote harmonious society. And the funny thing is that this government message itself backfired and people started commenting sarcastically about having been harmonized by the government when their blogs or posts were shut down. And well, the ironic thing is that the word harmony then had to be flagged up by the government and then censored from posts itself. 
But Chinese internet users were again one step ahead of the government, and they used a pun instead. And a pun that sounds very similar to the word for harmony, but instead means river crab. And out of that, there was a whole series of memes that use literally crabs in rivers to make the point visually. <laughs> and so, by using this river crab for their messaging, protesters had the upper hand on the government. But this was short-lived because, in this ironic turn, the counter movement fell prey to commercialization, and this river crab started appearing on T-shirts, on mouse pads, and even as soft toys that were sold on the internet. And so, this counter movement effectively got counter memed again. And so, we have been talking about these meme spaces as these kind of free-for-all environments, but there is one important caveat, and that's that within these environments. There are pages and blogs that are super spreaders, and they have some kind of power when it comes to how memes circulate on the internet. And that kind of power doesn't really map onto the influences that, say, countries have or that media infrastructures may have, but rather about the size of their followership and so how big the audiences are that they can present memes to. Right, and if you take the example of the most viral videos in the U.S. presidential election. Out of the 65 most viral videos, the vast majority of them could be linked to a small group of elite blogs with this massive followership. And so, once these videos were almost approved by these blogs, that's when the viral process was ignited. So memes can be used to rally support together for a particular cause, but they're always susceptible to being appropriated by counter ideologies. And it's because they're so malleable and so responsive with audiences that they can strike a chord with them. But at the same time, they are so malleable and so responsive that they can be appropriated in really unexpected ways. And so, from this, the second question we wanted to look at was beyond the features of memes, and instead focused on the content and. Where this content comes from, whether there was this dominant source of visual culture on the internet, and the answer is that there are many different voices on the internet, and so memes are coming at us from pretty much all around the world. Take Gangnam Style for example, which was released in December of 2012 in South Korea. As we know, it spread around the world, and people were making all kinds of local variations of it. And the important thing to note with this is that. Like any other meme, people weren't just passively responding to the memes, but users were really involved in creating them. So they were always adapting it to their local environments, and we ended up with things as diverse as Mitt Romney style and Singaporean style and Arab style. And it's not just in Gangnam Style that we see this. So in 2009, this group of sociologists studied the most popular jokes that were shared. In the English language over the internet, and saw how they spread to non-English parts. And out of the nine most common languages on the internet, jokes were spread widely in eight of them. But it wasn't just this direct translation. What they noticed was that any references were always adapted to suit the local context of that language. So references to the NBA or rugby. Were replaced with the Bundesliga when the joke was translated to German, and this kind of 
cultural translation happened across all these languages. And Gangnam Style and these jokes are just two of many, many examples of how the internet is so fluid and how things get taken from country to country and spread around the world. And with us to talk about this phenomenon further is Gabriela del Zeta, who is a media anthropologist and currently a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Bergen in Norway. So Gabriele, thank you for joining us on the show. Can you start off by telling us about the origins of the Pepe meme and the different incarnations it has within American meme culture? Yeah. So I'm I'm not I'm not a like a Pepe expert. There's people who who wrote you know much more in depth uh, studies on the origins of Pepe, but it was a comic character from a, an indie comic actually by uh, Matt Fury, who is this uh, American comic artist, and he he had this you know comic series of comic books in which Pepe was one of the protagonists. So it was this kind of uh, anthropomorphized animals, uh, and it's this kind of you know self uh, ironic meta comic about you know, these anthropophized animals living together and doing stuff. And um, for a while, it was just this comic and it was not a meme. Um, it became a meme when anecdotally, because I haven't found the actual evidence for this, but some users um, in a bodybuilding forum, probably some of them were reading this comic and scanned it or uh, took a photo of it, of a specific panel uh, in which Pepe was protagonist. And they started using that panel as a reaction image. So, you know, it was this, that kind of culture in forums uh, of using reaction images as a post to respond to someone else with a, you know, an expression. And I guess it was funny. It was uh, very expressive as a panel. And so it started being more and more used in forums. And I think the, the big leap was when it moved to some, some user brought it to 4chan and read it, you know, this kind of larger bulletin boards and image boards. And so it Pepe entered this big repertoire of reaction images. And this is also the, the time when people started not knowing where it came from, right? Maybe some of them knew it was called Pepe, but others just thought it was a frog, like a funny frog or whatever. And so it just became, you know, a reaction image that is used in you know American digital culture and then global from there. And so how was the Pepe meme reappropriated by Chinese internet users? And what alternative meaning did it hold? Yeah, I think it was part of this uh, global circulation of Pepe that happened, you know, from 4chan, Reddit, and these websites out into the world. And um, I don't think China was uh, particularly different from other places in the sense that, as I said, many people who see Pepe as a reaction image or, or as part of a meme don't know where it comes from, don't even maybe know that it's called Pepe. They just see a, like a funny anthropomorphized frog that is, you know, relatable uh, and it's very expressive. And, um, you know, it's instantly, you can instantly connect and, and it's funny because it reacts to someone else's post or to some thought or concept. And so that's why it becomes popular. And that, that's common for a lot of memes and reaction images. They're, they're expressive, they're funny for, you know, everyone mostly. So they're instantly, uh, you can instantly connect with them. And in China, it was the same. Um, I don't know exactly when it started being popular, but I guess in the mid 2010s. Um, and again, it was started to be used as a sticker because the Chinese social media apps have this thing called stickers that then, you know, Facebook has as well now and many other apps started using them. So users would upload Pepe as a custom sticker and use it in chat discussions. And then others would start to make 
you know, Chinese specific memes with Pepe by using Chinese text or Chinese references. And in general, I would say Pepe was interpreted as a funny frog or a sad frog, depending on which uh, image of his face was most popular. Like use, and I think the most popular was the sad one. So actually, in Chinese, he's mostly known as a Shangxing Qinghua, which means sad frog. So most people would not know him as Pepe, but as a sad frog. And so I guess most people related to it or to him as you know a, an expression of this like total sadness in front of something that happened, and that's how it was used for the most part. And have you come across any other examples of memes or items of culture that have spread around the world in this way, and that have been quite successful in China? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's it's quite common to think of、uh, you know Chinese internet culture as something that is very like separated from the rest of the world or in opposition to the American internet culture, but. This is true to a certain extent, in the sense that the platforms are quite separated. You know, Chinese people cannot go on Facebook unless they use a VPN, and、uh, American people are not very familiar with Chinese platforms. But this does not mean that you know there are separate cultures. I think I've realized there is you know a lot of exchange、uh, because content circulates. So even if the platforms are different and separated and incompatible, users. Move between platforms,、uh, and content circulates between platforms, and I've seen a lot of examples of this.、Um, especially, you know, even just in memes. Speak talking about memes, a lot of memes, you know, start in the U.S. and then arrive in China or in other places and are totally reworked. But others also start in China and then move to the U.S. and then are rediscovered by China. There's a famous one that's、uh, a basketball player Yao Ming, who he he became a meme in the U.S. for some reason as like this kind of sketched reaction image, and then Chinese people rediscovered it and were like, "Wow, so Yao Ming is a meme in the U.S.,"、um, and now it's used in China as well as a reaction image. But you know, there is this con- constant flow of content from popular culture. So American movies become memes in. Uh, in China, where Chinese movies become memes in the U.S. and then they they go back and forth.、Um, there is a famous case of a bodybuilder and actor who has become a very popular meme in Japan and then in Taiwan and China,、uh, and you know for years to the point that he has gone、uh, there to Japan and China and Taiwan many times on tour to meet his fans because he's pop- so popular as a meme, as a reaction image, as a video、uh, remix material. Uh, but he was mostly unknown in the U.S., if not from you know, underground pe- people that are into this like underground internet cultures. And he recently passed away, and it was like this massive expressions of grief、uh, in China and Japan and Taiwan.、Uh, but in the U.S., it was not like a big deal because not a lot of people knew about him. So it, it's interesting that there is this、uh, you know constant flows of content. And what are your reflections on this fluidity in meaning, and what does it say about internet culture in general? Yeah, I think it's not unexpected.、Uh, there's been, you know, a lot of writing consistently arguing that、uh, through digital media, the internet, and you know, in general, using these tools to disseminate content,、uh, it's unavoidable to have,、uh, you know, these constant changes, shifting meanings, and、uh, there's no fixed version of anything. Uh, and any kind of material can be changed into other forms of media and over-inscribed with meaning. So I think this confirms a lot that has been written about internet culture, and I think it also challenges the idea that internet culture is a culture. 
we, we tend to think of it as like a culture of the internet, like we think of, you know, the, the classic anthropological idea of culture of, you know, a tribe or a nation or whatever. But I think this shows that internet culture is precisely not that kind of culture. It's not a culture of like fixed uh, repertoires and uh, ideas and attributes. It's more of a, it's more of a repertoire of things that constantly shift and are constantly maintained by different groups of people and the things move between these groups of people and they're constantly reinterpreted. So to me, it's, it's a great example of, you know, the need to rethink what culture means uh, and how it's this internet culture that we might think it's singular or plural is internet cultures, but they, they need to be grounded in practice. So what, what people actually do and how they maintain these repertoires as something active and lively. Thank you so much, Gabriele, for sharing with us your insight from your research and really showing us how memes and information on the internet spreads across the world and can take on different meanings to different people. Thank you so much for listening to the episode and making it this far. We've got many more exciting stories coming up in future episodes and on our Instagram page at seasoned.migrant. If you have any thoughts, any comments, or any ideas for future topics, please send us a message. Also, we love feedback, so let us know what you loved and how we could improve. You've been listening to the Seasoned Migrant Podcast. We'll be back next week. Goodbye.